History Notes. Welcome to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. History Notes reports on the people, places, monuments, and events that have shaped our society. Sometimes we examine what has occurred long ago, and at times we look at history happening now. Grab a pad, a pen, or a digital device and get engaged with History Notes. Good day, everyone. This is Rodney Dawson, Curator of Education at the Greensboro History Museum, and welcome to our another di- edition of History Notes, um, where we want to equip our learners, and we found that not just to be the classroom environment, but lifelong learners in general. And so we try to make this program where it's digitized, you can easily pop in your AirPods or whatever device you have and use this to for teachers to plan a lesson plan around or supplement a lesson plan or just learn more about uh, the interesting people, places, and things uh, that are germane to our area here in uh, the Gate City. And today will be no different. I think you're going to be uh, enlightened by our guest today. She she's a, has a wealth of knowledge. I've met her uh, over a year now and I uh, was immediately impressed when we were sitting in a room together. And I don't know if you walked in late or I don't think you walked in late, but when you talked, when you first started to speak, you took over the room. And I remember going home and telling my wife, I said, I met this lady today and she has such a great command. And I said, I want to be like that one day. And so you, you inspired me. Uh, but none other than uh, Dr. Deborah Barnes is joining us today. Thank you for being a guest on History Notes. Uh, Dr. Barnes is a visiting, a new position, right? Visiting research fellow in the African-American African Diaspora Studies Program at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So welcome to History Notes. Thank you for having me, Rodney. Okay, I appreciate you coming. And uh, you got always had your hands full. Uh, I got some questions I do want to ask you, but can we spend 45 seconds talking about the project you did? I think you started it last summer uh, with the garden. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Um, I am all about food security uh, and food justice. And so we started a farmer's market. First, we started with a community garden. And then we moved to a farmer's market that started in High Point. And then last year we had two markets, one in High Point and one in Greensboro, uh, that are ongoing this year as well. Okay. How's it been? Um, It's been good on the one hand and slow on the other. It's been good in the sense that it's very popular and people come. It's been a little bit slow in terms of getting to the people who are food insecure, people who are... um, all about uh, fresh whole foods and farmers markets and that eating local. We draw those people very easily. Understood. But we are trying to get food into food deserts to people who don't have access to food. That's been a little slower, but we we are still plodding ahead. Okay. Well, uh, perhaps uh, not to take up all your time, but we'll get you back later on. We can talk about that. Happily, happily. All right. But today we want to talk about your two projects Mm -hmm. you have coming up and um, want to kind of enlighten the audience on that. But it's uh, kind of centers around lynching. Yes, it does. And, you know, I've been working with the Guilford County Community Remembrance Project, whom we have a podcast. If you go on GreensboroHistory.org. Uh, go into our Discover and Learn or just select podcasts, and you can check that out. Um, but we have that that podcast. But I want you to talk to an audience uh, about lynching. Okay. You know, we have our preconceived notions of what we think it is. But tell us, what is a lynching? Well, lynching is a what scholars call mob justice, where people who are overrunning sort of the traditional justice system take the law into their own hands to punish 
a person they believe has not only broken the law, but cultural mores and that sort of thing. Um, but it really is more than that. Um, it's so much deeper than that in the sense that it's not only a form of social control, but it is a way of, certainly for my research, articulating whiteness. That lynching really begins in earnest after the Civil War. And prior to the Civil War, even though we know there are um, Europeans and Africans and Asians, they call them Mongolians and indigenous persons, whiteness as as a social category doesn't really exist or need to exist because people are either enslaved or they are free. But once the Civil War is over, it becomes important to be able to organize the society in such a way that you know who has power and who does not. And so the idea of whiteness really comes about at that time. And part of the ways that people who come from other countries around the world who are migrating here um, become part of this society is whether they're going to come in as white people or foreigners, ethnic Mm -hmm. others. And so, for example, people that we think of as white today Irish and Italians, for example, or even Jewish people, we may think of as white, were certainly not white or considered white at that time. And so when they came here, they were um, considered, they didn't have the word ethnic, they were just foreigners. And the ways that they got to become white was that they stood with whiteness in terms of um, being willing to legislate violence against people who could not resist or, or could not effectively resist. They did resist. Hmm. Um, and that's one of the per- points of my study is to show that people did resist. We weren't just, we didn't just lay down for slavery and we didn't just lay down for Bob Justice. But when you don't write the books, then your resistance doesn't get noted in the same way. And so after uh, the Civil War ends and people are free and start to move across the country, uh, about that time, we pretty much stopped right on the other side of the Mississippi River, mm-hmm. and the rest of the country is territory. As And people come from all over the world um, to, to migrate here because of things that are going on in other parts of the world, just as they're doing now. Right, today. Uh, yes. And so how that part of the country is going to be controlled is dictated by what we would call today the 1%. Our society is pretty much run by 1% that has all of the wealth. Mm-hmm. And that 1% would authorize another sort of 1% of the people that, that didn't have the wealth to control the rest of the people. Right. And so as people came into the country, tried, especially during the gold rush, um, Americans that went to the gold rush didn't want so-called foreigners to take that money from them or to steal what they considered to be their resources, even though, for the most part, this is all unclaimed territory. It's just territory. It doesn't belong to the United States. California becomes a state in 1850, and everything else is just free for the, is, mm. is considered Indian territory for the most part. So it is occupied. Oh, yes. Everything was always occupied, Mm. but they didn't see it that way. And so they felt like the resources and the land was there for the taking. So you have this idea of manifest destiny, which starts about the same time, where this land was was, um, 
controlled by white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, which is to say Christians. And they believe that God gave them this land for their own purposes and everything in it. And so they would go west in order to reap these resources they thought were just laying there for them to come and take without regard for the fact that there were all kinds of people living on this land. And and when we say indigenous people, um, we don't mean just Native Americans, but certainly Spanish-speaking peoples were all through Texas, Arizona, um, Nevada, mm-hmm. California. They all had different names depending on that geography, but they were Spanish-speaking people. After the Spanish-American War, they take that land from those people, and it becomes the United States. And so everybody who had been living there, if they if they get to stay, become second-class citizens in their own place, or they get pushed back into what we now call Mexico. Now, I've read that we could have taken, well, after the Spanish-American War, they could have taken all of Mexico. Matter of fact, they had troops occupying Mexico City, but they took the portions, the northern part, because it was the least populated. Hmm is what I heard, and uh, they didn't want the people. They just wanted the land. Right. They just wanted the land, and they've always just wanted the land, and for some reason the people who are on that land do not matter. Um, And, of course, you know, a lot is being said about structural racism and redlining and housing and that sort of thing. It's this part of the history when the land is literally being given away to people who will go out and, and stake their claims on land that that belongs to other people, right? And so now when we talk about discrimination in housing, and and really not just housing, but the fact that people can't have land ownership, uh, it's at this point that so-called white people are given this land if they just can go out and stay on it for five years and what they call improve it, which is to either put up a fence or some sort of outbuilding. That's all they have to do to get this land. And the people who were on it are pushed off or either forced to work against their will in service to these people who come out. And so one of the um, points that I want to make in my study is that we are narrowly defining everything. Um, We narrowly define slavery. Slavery certainly should be When we talk about it, we should always say chattel slavery or the enslavement of Africans in America because these same people enslaved indigenous peoples. They enslaved these Spanish-speaking peoples. They tried to enslave the Chinese. Um, If you're paying somebody 50 cents a day when everybody else is making uh, $5 to $12 a day, that's almost the same as enslavement. And so during this period, you get this hierarchy of labor that once slavery is ended, uh, this country is built on free or cheap labor. And so in addition to people who are being forced to work against their will, you have the beginning of the prison industrial complex, which is that they begin to do convict lease. So they round up all these people who used to be slaves, who used to be enslaved, Let's mm-hmm. note their humanity, and put them in jail and then lease them out to these corporations to do to build the infrastructure of this country. And so the public buildings, the highways, the schools, the bridges, all of those kinds of uh, civil improvements get done by convict labor. Um, and lynching plays a, a, a direct role in 
controlling what people do around labor. Now, I don't mean to diminish the fact that it's based on racial hatred, but the racial hatred is almost secondary. Um, It's the desire to put people to work for almost nothing so that this, what I'm calling the 1%, can keep all of the money for themselves. And so then you have to authorize these other people who are coming in that you don't mean to join you in that 1%. You give them the privilege of being able to dominate these other people, and that's where you get this class status that comes up from there. Okay. Um, I want to stay on point, but I do Mm -hmm. want to ask you a question, but we'll be here all day. So (laughs) (laughs) I want to jump back to what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. uh, but I want to bring it home to Guilford County. Sure. Um, There's only been one loan, as we noted in the the other uh, podcast we Mm -hmm. did with GCCRP. There's only been one one loan documented. Uh, lynching in Guilford County that happened to occur yes. uh, here in Greensboro um, of Eugene Harrison. Can yes. you tell us, briefly tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Eugene Harrison was a 17-year-old male who lived around Kernersville. He's accused of having attacked uh, and assaulted, I believe is the word they use, Mahala Sap. Um, little is known about her except that she is the victim of assault. Uh, they live close to each other. He says in, in one of the news coverages that he's never seen her before, doesn't know her. But he's accused of having attacked her, is uh, arrested and brought to jail in Greensboro to prevent a lynching. Uh, Fifty men are said to have gotten together and ridden to Greensboro on horseback and muleback and come to the jail and insist that the jailer give them this boy. He's 17. Mm -hmm. Um, And the jailer refuses, so they break into the jail and take him out, uh, take him to what is considered then the edge of town, which is now over by UNCG, Mm -hmm. uh, to Jackson Farm, and they hang him to a tree near the Little Red Schoolhouse, which is as much location as we know. And then the next day, uh, the family is finally allowed to come and take his body down. There is a a sign around his body. I believe they shoot him full of bullets. I can't swear to that. But I think they should. I've heard that account. Yes, some shotgun okay. pellets. Yeah. Um, you know, it's never enough just to murder somebody. You have to completely desecrate their body. And, in fact, they hang the sign around his neck, and he's so riddled with bullets, nobody can read the sign. But it probably said something about what happens to people that uh, um, assault white women. We don't know where the body was buried, but we did locate the place where the rest of his family was buried, uh, in St. Paul's Cemetery, and we put a marker there assuming that he would have been buried near the rest of his family. Um, it becomes important to hide, sometimes to hide the body, because people who are determined to desecrate the body that way may go and dig the body up or just prevent you from being able to uh, deal with it in, in culturally appropriate ways. And so there's no marker for him. And we wanted to at least acknowledge his life and his death, and we put a marker there in the cemetery on his behalf. We we typically think of, of lynching, we we see it as a horrific act. Yes. Um, it's very, a lot of dynamics to it. doesn't have to be necessarily someone's being hanged. Right. Um, but it's, when you think about it, it's an act that's almost always per, a perpetual, what am I trying to say, um, perpetrated on African-Americans. 
In your studies, you revealed something different. Can you elaborate on that? Right. Well, uh, as we have come to know it, we think of it as a crime against uh, blacks, uh, a a crime on blacks by whites. Mm. Uh, There were, according to the NAACP, which keeps the statistics, Tuskegee Institute, the NAACP, and the Chicago Tribune are the first people to really try to document this atrocity. And about uh, three-quarters of the people who are lynched are black and maybe one-quarter are white. And they say that that one-quarter is primarily in the western part of the country. Um, What you have to understand about that period and why lynching is uh, characterized this way is that for the most part, when you think about American culture, it's it's bifurcated along black and white lines. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of other people here. Right. But somehow society gets defined as being black and white. Uh, And what happens is that lots of other kinds of people are characterized as white who are not and are not treated as white. So, for example, um, Mexicans or Spanish speaking people, because they weren't necessarily from Mexico, are considered are characterized as white. Even Chinese, who were considered um, not white by any standard, get characterized in the count as white. Is this for census purposes? or No, this okay, is no. not even part of the census. It's okay. just that they're not black. Okay. Um, that we know that society only sees things in, in these gotcha. dual tones, right? And so if you're not black, then you're automatically something else. Right. You're kind of like an honorary white. Well, the more I started... Looking into this, the more I realized that there were all kinds of other people who were lynched. In fact, everybody gets lynched. It's not just black people and white people. It's uh, it's Spanish-speaking people, Chinese people, Ch- Chileans. They killed a good number of people from Chile who came here for the gold rush. Uh, Jewish people, Italians. Eleven Italians are lynched at one time in New Orleans, so much so that they had to pay Italy reparations. And in fact, they have to pay China reparations for the people that they murdered. So those of you out there thinking about reparations have some more mm. <laughs> some more fuel for that fire that reparations have been paid for people uh, from other countries. Um, and so the question becomes, for me, what is the investment in making this a black and white issue? Well, part of it is that it is brought to America's attention by black people, uh, most notably Ida B. Wells, but certainly the fact that Tuskegee Institute and NAACP helped to organize this information and present it. They are most assuredly concerned about these, what do they say, two to three people every week are being Mm -hmm. murdered by lynch mobs for 51 years. That's a lot of murders. And so right now we talk about police violence, and we think of that uh, police murdering or or certainly attacking black people in the streets. Mm-hmm. Well, it's safe to I think it's safe to assume that they're also doing that to Latinos, right? I mean, at a at a glance, you may not know who you are attacking, but black people are bringing that that discussion to the table, and so we think of it as a as a black crime. Well, as it turns out, plenty of people have written about the fact that other Groups of people are being murdered mm-hmm. in this way. How do you how do you find this? 
uh, now everything is digitized and all you need is a search engine. When I first started this uh, this uh, study, it was very difficult to find. Mm-hmm. You, I started by going through what the NAACP uh, collected. And just about the time I got started, the Without Sanctuary exhibit circulated the country. Do you remember that, where the lynching photographs uh, that had been curated, all of these lynching postcards and photographs went around the country? Is that what you use? Um, well, Is that, that part of what you've used? I, I, that's certainly where I started. Okay. And because that was such an epic moment um, in um, scholarship, you might say, uh, I, I attended. I went to all of those exhibits, and there were a bevy of scholars who, of course, showed up there, and that became a thing to discuss. And the more that we discussed it and, and studied it and wrote on it, then the more resources became available. Uh, I began, for example, being really interested in the murder of Henry Smith in uh, Paris, Texas, in 1881. And he is, this is the first uh, spectacle lynching. And somewhere in a footnote, I saw reference to this um, this um, document. Not to stop you, when you say spectacle, what do you mean? I mean, um, it was designed to be entertainment. Gotcha. Okay. okay. 10,000 people came from five states on specially chartered trains built by the railroads. There was food, there was drink, there was celebration in the public murder of this man, Henry Smith. And when I, I found this in, this um, note in, in a footnote somewhere and found out that it was in the Library of Congress, and I went to the Library of Congress to read it, and I think I was the third person who had ever looked at it. You know, mm. they have a record of who's checked things out. And, and as I was turning the pages, it practically disintegrated in my hands. And it was at that time that the Library of Congress started to digitize everything, and they were they went through the NAACP's documents and things. Well, once you do that, it becomes very easy for people to search for it. Um, I literally went to some a library in um, Sherman, Texas, where there were I was collecting lynching narratives, and these are first person eyewitness published accounts of a lynching that's written either by a lyncher a spectator, an anti-lynching advocate, or a victim. There are two of them that have been published by people who were lynched that didn't die and went on to publish mm-hmm. these accounts. They're kind of like coffee table books. I thought this was incredible. As an English major, I'd never heard of this. And so I went around to these libraries trying to collect them, and I went to a library in Sherman, Texas, and the librarian said, oh, come on in the back with me. I think you're going to want to see this. She said, it's not even um, filed. It's not even, um, you know, in, in the library proper because we didn't know what to call it. Mm. If you don't have a designation under the Library of Congress heading by which to shelve it on the shelves, then you can't, then it's not part of the collection. And so I was able to get a copy of it. I'm sure by now that they've logged it in somewhere. Mm-hmm. But when I saw it, it was sitting on top of the file cabinet. And so that shows you how far lynching information has come over um, the, the last, I guess, this last 20 years. I've been working on this 20 years because I had to keep stopping to earn a living. Right. <laughs> Didn't get that trust fund yet. Oh, well, mm-hmm. it's coming. Mm-hmm. Just share it when it gets here. I'm ready for it. Now, and I want to ask you a couple questions before we go to a break here. Yeah. Um, 
you talked about um, the the lynching in Paris, Texas. Yes. It's being the first spectacle lynching. Yes. Uh, so it's if there's a first, it has to be a second and a third, I'm assuming. Certainly. Um, why do you believe that the practice of lynching took on this spectacular nature, nature where it wanted spectators? Um, lots of reasons. One, now you have lots of people who need to find their way in society. Where are they going to fit in? Right. And as I said, violence against black people helps you decide where you're going to fit in. The other thing is they don't have an Internet. They don't have television. They don't have radio. They don't have anything to do. People work. They procreate and they sleep. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they don't have anything to do. And um, in fact, some of the people who in the earliest days who write about it say that lynching is like bread and circuses, that there's nothing else for people to do. So people would come from miles around to see this sort of thing. Some of them are just curious. Some of them want to participate. Um, some of them consider it their civic duty, that policing the environment is considered a sort of community activity. And you have to police it against those people that don't know their place, which is almost always the people who are being lynched. Uh, I think it's important to note, just as a um, footnote, um, Rodney, that most many lynchings, as in the case of Eugene Harrison, are undertaken as a way of protecting white women, allegedly. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about protecting white women, that white women are held to a very narrow life <laughs> atop this pedestal. And if they step out in any way, then there has to be a way of controlling them as well. And so if you're in the middle of nowhere, which is where lots of lynchings take place um, in rural areas, but not only, um, it may be that the only people you have to talk to are the black people down the road. Rarely do are lynch mobs after somebody that nobody knows. They almost always are people that live in or around you that, that need some sort of control. Right. Mm. So if it's uh, if it's harvest time, uh, you want people to or, or not harvest time, but right after harvest time and people are not happy with the shares that they got um, for for the food they grew or, or harvested or whatever, then you have to have a lynching to make them shut up and go back to their house and be quiet. Um, if you want to control women, then you have to say, if I even see you talking to this person, I'm going to murder them in front of you on your behalf, and then that woman is sullied. Now, she may get to live, but she's always known as the woman who had some kind of congress with that Negro or whoever was killed. And so it's a way of keeping everybody under control, um, even when it doesn't seem to be that way. It it, it gets discussed on the basis of honor. Mm -hmm. Uh, A man has to protect his home, and that means that everybody in that home is his possession and has to do what he says do, which is stay in there. Now, they were free to have Congress with people across racial lines, but not the women. And so it's important to understand that even though they are lynching on their behalf, they also lynch white women. Mm. And not usually for any kind of Congress with a black person, but in some cases to steal property. If there is a very famous lynching out in Wyoming of Cattle Kate, she gets called Cattle Kate. Uh, She is um, 
a woman whose husband had been a, a, owned a huge uh, ranch with lots of heads of cattle, and when he dies, she inherits it. And so the local men want to steal that property, so they um, there are allegations against her, and they haul her out and, and lynch her, and then the property is theirs. So wow. frequently it's also about land acquisition. All right, when we come back, I want to ask you about how it took a capitalistic nature mm-hmm. and then why it became a Southern phenomenon. And if we have time, I'll get into some other things. But I want to talk about uh, when we you work the projects you're working on and maybe you can give us a time frame. We might be, expect to, to see it. Don't push me. No, now. no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but we're talking with Dr. Barnes. She's uh, visiting. We're talking with Dr. Barnes. She's the visiting research fellow of African-American studies and African-American diaspora at UNCG, and uh, she's our guest here today on History Notes, and we'll be back, and we're going to talk about more on exactly what lynching is and then how it became a profitable venture. I'll right, be back in a moment. You've been listening to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. To learn more about this podcast and many more, visit our website at www.greensborohistory.org. Now let's listen in to History Notes. Welcome back to History Notes. I'm your host, Rodney Dawson, Curator of Education at the Greensboro History Museum. And as we've mentioned before, we have Dr. Barnes uh, visiting the table today at Press Play Studios. And we're having an interesting interesting conversation about lynching, and you've uh, helped educate us on the wide scope of lynching. And uh, we're going to talk in a moment about how it just became, uh, it's about making money. Yeah. And uh, you touched on some things about being in these rural areas with not much entertainment and how that became an aspect. Uh, but we also talked about um, the spectacle lynching. Yes. You know, it was, um, it was intended to, to draw an audience. And uh, the case in Paris, Texas being the first one that you found in your research. Um, so you wanted to elaborate a little bit more on, on that for us. Right. Um, Paris, Texas isn't actually the first one, but it's if if it were a book, we'd call it the Urtext. And that is where all of the parts that later become understood as that phenomenon are operating at that one time. Mm. So, so there are some large lynchings where people come from other places. But the thing that separates Paris, Texas, is worthy of note for us, is the um, support of the railroad, right? So in every case, then and now, people see a phenomenon and say, how can I make money from that? And so one of the ways that America really um, expands its ability to become capitalist is the building of the railroads across the country, opens up the West and connects the East and the West. And so these railroads then offer up special excursion trains that pick up people from five different states and bring them to Paris, Texas. And so one of the things about a spectacle lynching is it has to be advertised in advance. It's not a spontaneous event. A crime is committed. We're outraged. We have to exact some kind of justice. This gives them time to bring people, to alert people to it in different places. We now have radio. Uh, In newspapers, we can bring them to this place on these specially chartered trains. There are souvenirs, so then even the dismemberment and the sale of body parts becomes Mm. its own kind of industry. We have photographers who record the event and then sell pictures, commemorative pictures at the event. This is before Polaroids, 
right? And mm. they find a way to take the pictures and sell them uh, as commemorative postcards that later become that exhibit I was telling you about without sanctuary. Right. So, uh, and then of course, whatever town it's in, people have to buy food. Some people decide to stay. Uh, you have to buy the lumber. Uh, to build a scaffold, you have to buy the rope, you have to buy the kerosene if you're going to burn them to death. All of these things are commercial principles, and it's a, it sounds like a little bit of money, but if you do it regularly enough, then it begins to add up or certainly becomes a sort of market niche. And one of the things that you'll find about lynchings is they tend to precipitate another one. So if there is a massive lynching here, there may be another one down the road about 10 miles. So they they tend to operate in rashes, if you will. Mm -hmm. Maybe viruses is the word of the day. Um, And then some other place will have one. And I am uh, convinced that there was a lynching impresario. I am looking day and night for evidence that there was literally a person that would go to these little podunk towns and say, you know, we can stimulate your economy by bringing a lynching here. And then they set it up because it wouldn't have been, it takes a lot of coordination to have all these things happen. What about the rule of law? And I say that in this case, uh, if you have an event that takes place and someone's accused Mm -hmm. of harming someone and, and they want to be lynched and... Are there no court dates that slow this thing down or speed it up? Or is that impresario working with the local government to? Well, you know, the rule of law doesn't apply to people of color. All right. Then or now. If you're accused, then we can put our knee on your neck in the street. (laughs) We Mm -hmm. don't have to actually take you through the court. But the thing that that, uh, certainly the NAACP decides that lynching is, is that there is A crime has been committed. The person has been alleged to have been the culprit and is in some part of the judicial practice, right? You're either under arrest, you've been taken to Mm -hmm. the jail, and then you're, and then that um, justice system is circumvented for mob law. To allow for that. That's what I was asking. But that's because they don't uh, deserve that system. And and what's interesting about that is that the mobist will say that they're worried that the law will not punish these people, which is hilarious. It's wrong because we're the only people who get punished by those laws. The rest of the people get away with it. You know, you think about the incursion on the Capitol, as so many people have said, if that had been a black mob, everybody would have gone to jail that wasn't shot dead in the street. And yet, one by one, we're sort of hearing of people. And so we know that the justice system was designed specifically to punish us and to make sure that we got into the carceral system. And yet, there was this this feeling that they needed to circumvent it to make sure that justice was served. Right. And so I'm, I guess you, you've answered the question that there had to be someone there to coordinate to allow time for advertisement, allow time for the word word of mouth to spread to get the people to gather. So you you couldn't have a a mob snatch the person up the next day. Right. You know, so someone had to say, "No, hold on. Let's let's build time for this so we can make some money." Well, the other thing is that the so-called justice system that people who are in the justice system are involved in different sorts of ways. Um there are 
there aren't police yet, but whoever mm-hmm. these vigilantes are, are organized and work at the uh, behest of what's called, they call, the town's best men. So it's not, you know, we also have this idea that it's some drunken rabble living on the edge of town who just are, you know, acting crazy. No, that in all of these cases, the town's best men give permission for this kind of uh, miscarriage of justice by our terms and mob justice by their terms. Uh, town's that, town's best men doesn't necessarily have to be a political leader. It's just the no. person that had influence, people that had whoever who usually whoever has the most money usually and the okay. most persuasion, right? And and these lynchings become uh, a way for people to even run for office. So you'll have elected officials that often come and make speeches. You have ministers that'll give sermons. Uh, you have all kinds of people who speak before they actually murder the culprit in the spectacle lynching. Now, some of them are a little more spontaneous than that, but if it's going to be a spectacle, uh, sometimes the spectacle takes time in the case of Henry Smith because they had to chase him down. They had to find him first and mm-hmm. bring him back. Um, and and they bring him back on the train and they literally uh, send letters to all of these stops along the train and ask the people, please don't take him off this train and lynch him. We need to take him back to Paris because it's our right to be able to do this. The other thing they say, and the reason I'm, I'm saying they say is they write every single thing down. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to read, you can find out exactly what happens, right? Is that um, they say, we made the law, so it, we'll do whatever we want with it. In other words, the law is not an abstraction that comes from on high, but we made the law so we can decide how we want to adjudicate it, even if we want to do it with our own hands right now in the street where everybody gets to have a say. Uh, everybody gets to play a role, I should say. With the spectacle lynching, were there a large, in your research, have you found large crowds gathering for non-black victims? Um, I have not yet come across a spectacle lynching of a non-black victim. Okay. Um, unless, uh, um, I think there are a good many people who lynch um, Leo, I can't think of Leo's last name. He's a Jewish fellow in Atlanta. I think there are a good number of people that come to his lynching, but he, I don't think it's considered a spectacle. I think the, the spectacle has to be that it's announced ahead of time, and people have a chance to get there. And incidentally, at the, at the Smith lynching, it's February 1st. It is sleeting. People come from five states and stand in the sleet to watch him be tortured and and brutalized for hours before they set him on fire and then cut him up and distribute his body parts uh, to the crowd. Mm. They are committed to that. Now, this is in Texas. Yes. And, and and from my earlier conversation you had, there's only there are only two states that don't have a documented lynching. Am yes. I correct? Yes. Uh, so it's happened all across the country. Yes. Now, why did it become or how did it become a southern phenomenon? I'm glad you went back to that because we were talking about it being a black phenomenon. And it isn't a southern phenomenon. It happens everywhere. But again, it has to do with how the information is brought to you in the first place. So when it first comes out as a subject for debate by Ida B. Wells and the NAACP, they are mostly concerned about this destruction of black bodies, which is happening primarily in the South. 
the fact that it's the, the other lynchings of, of non-blacks, if you will, tends to be even before 1880s, which is, uh, I think it's 1882 when um, Ida B. Wells starts um, looking at, starts collecting this information. Um, or not Ida B. Wells, but the um, Chicago Tribune, and she goes to, gets her information from the Chicago Tribune. Well, in 18... 49 with the gold rush is mm-hmm. when they start lynching Chinese, for example. And then you have the indigenous people, which they're continuing to lynch as well. I mean, after they heard them out on the Trail of Tears and other kinds of dislocations, they continue to murder them as they come across them. But we call those things a whole lot of other names, so they don't get compiled in the mm-hmm. same way. And so this comes back to the way that we organize information and knowing. And so a Eurocentric forms of epistemology, the way that they know, is to classify things, right? To break them down into categories and then and consider it that way. But if you took the categories out and you looked across this spectrum and say, well, when who is being lynched? Who is being murdered publicly? for the crime of not being white, you get a lot more different people, mm. right? You, If you don't narrow it down to that those that couple of years, I don't mean couple of years, it's 51 years that, right. that is the considered the lynching era, then the information changes comprehensively. And why do I think that is important is that it's important to know that this kind of violence against people is comprehensive. I think a lot of people were probably surprised recently to discover that just within the last year, there were 3,800 attacks on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in this country, right? Hmm. Racial attacks. They were attacked because they were Asian American Pacific Islanders, not because of anything else. Mm -hmm. And so, but they don't get counted. We're too busy counting the black lives that are lost to police, nobody's counting the Hispanic lives, right? I mean, so if we looked at all of those together, we would see that there is an onslaught against people in this country of mm-hmm. every kind. And if you don't care about one, maybe you'll care about the other. Or if all those people came together and said, no more, you have a lot more people saying no more than right. if you just went with a handful of you you uh, remind me of something. We did a webinar series uh, about indigenous in North Carolina, mm-hmm. and it was a three-part series. One of the parts was murdered, missing indigenous women. Mm-hmm. And uh, right. my guest that I had on, I can't remember. Uh, we had a couple guests. One of them was a professor at UNC Pembroke. But she, but they they said this. They said, no one's counting our stats. Mm-hmm. And they say, and even when they do see us, they're going to lump us in as either white or black. That's exactly right. And so by you saying that reminded me, you know, if we did. And what difference yeah. does it make? Right. Why do we need to keep our eye on that? Because mm-hmm. they don't count anyway. That's right. exactly how they felt about so many of us. Mm-hmm. And to go back to our earlier question you had about what counts as a lynching, supposedly I said that there had to be the allegation of a crime. You have to be somewhere in the criminal justice process that gets interrupted. And there have to be three or more people who who take you away for this comeuppance, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the most famous lynching anybody knows is Emmett Till. Emmett Till's not a lynching. 
by that definition, Emmett Till is not a lynching. That's a yeah. murder. Two people. Yeah. One victim. And no no allegation of a crime. You're talking about a husband and a brother-in-law mm-hmm. who said, you talk crazy to my wife and I'm going to take you out here and torture you and kill you. That's not a lynching in terms of what a lynching is defined to be. So if you use Emmett Till as an example, I, those numbers have to be off the charts, mm. right? And And think how many people didn't have somebody to tell or were afraid and the people, you know, absconded. Who, who were the victims of that. By the same token, let me come back to another thing about Eugene Harrison. When they hauled Eugene Harrison out of there and took him to jail, the local blacks organized and decided that they were going to prevent that lynching. And they went to the site of the Little Red Schoolhouse and hid in a building across the street and had intended to stop the lynching. And somehow somebody rang a fire alarm, which made them believe they had been discovered before they could stop it, and they absconded. But we have this idea that black people just sit around singing spirituals and wringing their hands and don't ever have anything, no no kind of response to the ways that their um, communities are being decimated, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the way I got into this subject in the first place was through Toni Morrison's Paradise. I really am a Toni Morrison scholar mm. <laughs> who who veered off into the wide world of lynching because she writes this book, Paradise, which begins with a lynch mob attacking a former convent in the middle of nowhere where they kill these women. The book starts, they kill the white girl first, but the rest they can take their time. And they lynch these women and I'm thinking, oh, Toni Morrison is using this as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. And I tried, because what do I know about lynching? I think it's hanging, right? Just right. like most people do. And the more I look, the more I realize, no, that's not what it is. And then I discover there are black lynch mobs. That in fact, she isn't using that metaphorically, that there were black lynch mobs that were forced to police their own areas. Now, in Paradise, she's writing about an all-black towns in the West. You know, there were 26 all-black uh, incorporated towns in Kansas, Nebraska, and Oklahoma. And so this hers is a fictional town that's in Oklahoma. Um, but in many, many communities where black people lived, they could not count on the police to protect them. And so they had to have their own sort of vigilance committees that made sure that people stayed safe. The difference is black lynch mobs didn't lynch gratuitously or out of furor. They they lynched if you attacked the elderly or children in particular. Uh, anything else they, they could um, adjudicate in some other way. Um, but in, in this case, there are, in the case of uh, Toni Morrison's book, there's the case, there's the allegation that they are, there's an abortionist out there. And that women go out there and and nothing is ever the same with them. So they call themselves protecting the women of their community, not unlike um, black people did. I mean, white people did. Okay. Was there uh, there ever been an instance of uh, a non-white lynch mob lynching a white person? Yes. There's one in South Carolina. For the life of me, I can't think of the name of the city. I knew you were going to ask me this. It's near Clemson. And... This mob, a black mob, lynches a white man who has assaulted a little girl. And they do it with the approval of the local whites who don't 
try to stop them, who don't punish them, and in fact say publicly and in published accounts that they would have done the same thing. And so you also have to put lynch mobs into a sort of larger tableau of how people policed communities that don't have a justice system. And and so I don't know that there's any such thing as a good lynch mob, but there are some that <laughs> were trying to keep law and order, and then there are some that were uh, overriding law and order, and they're all pretty much happening at the same time. You know, I had one question, but you you alluded to it. You answered it before. We talked about um, in your upcoming projects, lynching as a means not only to enforce white uh, supremacy, mm-hmm. but a gender hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Did you want to say anything more on that or what you said earlier? Would that suffice? About gender hierarchy? Right. Yes. Um, I will say that one of the things that lynch mobs do in lynching, particularly black women, is to, dare I use the word, prove by their standard that black women are not, in fact, really women. That, In other words, you don't get the benefits of, of true womanhood, as they called it in the 19th century. Um, and so probably one of the more notorious lynchings that people know took case in Moore's Ford Bridge uh, in Georgia, where these two couples... Um, are accused of something stopped on the side of the road and the, and one of them is pregnant and they hang her upside and they lynch them and hang this woman upside down and cut her belly open and the ba- and let the baby fall out and then they stomp the baby on the side of the road and it's one of, and it's a it's late in the game. I want to say that's the 1940s. I'm not good at dates without looking. Mm-hmm. But it's late in the right. game when it comes to lynching. But that is to say that black women don't don't warrant the same sort of treatment or recognition that white women have. You're not the, we're not the same thing as they are. And so in that sense, then black males have to protect their women from the sort of idea that they might not be the same thing, that this idea of uh, respectability is huge coming out of um, slavery Uh, in the late 19th century, that black people are proving that they can be respectable, that they and they marry and they live in houses and they Mm -hmm. educate their children. And this becomes their stamp of we are not animals that you've been treating us like, that this is how we can prove that we are not. And they're not necessarily doing it to prove that to white people as much as they are doing it to lift themselves up from this degraded status they've been forced into by enslavement. With your, what is the goal? You got two projects coming up. Yeah. Um, what What's the goal and the purpose of these these? Can we call them both books? We can. Okay. Let's claim that. Let's go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> they are both books. One um, is an anthology, a collection of these lynching narratives, uh, which are these eyewitness, first-person accounts of people who either were lynchers themselves, and, and I started collecting them with Henry Smith, the people who lin- the man who lynches Henry Smith for the, for the uh, murder of his daughter is said to have written a book. I don't know, but... Mm. It's under his name. Maybe he had a ghostwriter. Okay. And so lynchers and spectators write books. There are two books that were written by um, people who escaped their own lynching. Uh, 
Mm. Um, so I wanted to provide that because I know that most people don't understand how lynchings work. And the lynchers are explaining it in the book. And it really changes everything as far as I'm concerned about what we know and, and the ways we've been thinking about it. But then the more I thought about it, I said, well, I need to put this into some sort of critical context that gives it meaning instead of people just reading the um, the, the lynching narrative itself. I needed to be able to explain how this fits into the context of Americanizing and the, the manifest destiny and the birth of this nation and the rise of capitalism and industrialism and all of that kind of thing, because lynching sort of picks up as the city, as we become more um industrialized, right, and leave an agrarian life. Um, and But when I came back to it recently, um, this past year, I really thought I was going to die from COVID, and I refused to die before I mm. finished this book. So I took right. the year off to say, I'm going to write this book. It was the last thing I do. And when I came back to it, everything had changed, and I realized I needed to add in all these other kinds of people who were being lynched. Right. That to tell the story about just black lynching just was no longer accurate once you understand that they're out there. Right. Mm -hmm. And then as I started writing it, then this information comes forward. We have people being separated at the border, their children being disappeared. We have all these assaults against uh, Asian-Americans, et cetera. Nobody knows what's happening to indigenous women. And all of that fits into the same um sort of framework. And so it changed what I was trying to say. So mm. I basically had to start over, which I was happy to do. So I think it's important to broaden our understanding of what this is and to also tell it from the perspective of people of color. People of color have a different ontology, just broadly speaking, not what they believe, but the way they see the world and what the world is. And, and so if you tell it, information from that perspective it's a different story right it, okay now we can't pin you down to a date no and, you cannot and, and, sir but when <laughs> when the time comes yes what can we look out for is there some social media tags websites um it's just a matter of you coming back on i'm gonna call you first Ronnie. okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna give you the opportunity to tell the world uh, I, I have to tell you, I haven't gotten that far. Okay. I'm too busy trying not to die from long COVID and get the book out. <laughs> well, take your time. Take your time. We know it's going to be a wonderful project. Us. And uh, for those that want to know more about the Guilford County Community Remembrance Project, yes, um, can you tell us how, if they want to get involved or just learn more, how can we do that? Yes. I wanted to thank you for coming back to that because mm -hmm. I wanted to announce that uh, two big things are coming up. We are starting a virtual films and discussion series coming up. Um, it's the third Wednesday of each month, starting May 20th, June 17th, and July 15th, the okay. third Wednesday. Uh, and that will be online. And you register at guilfordrememembranceproject.wordpress.com. Guilford Remembrance Project dot WordPress dot com. Uh, and then in August, we are intending to do the soil collection, which is part of the responsibility and belonging to the larger EJI Equal Justice Initiative mm -hmm. um, um, project, which asks everybody in these places to collect soil from the place where the lynching uh, occurred. We've scheduled that for August 
as close to the date of the lynching as possible. And we feel very lucky that schools will be back in. We were hoping, you know, to be able to have it really have community meeting in a, in a city with five universities. We want everybody to be back right. here for it. The anniversary, what is it, August 25th, 1898? 1873, I think. 1870, okay. Uh-huh. Wait a minute. Or 1883. 1883. Yeah, there you go. I told you don't ask. 1887, August 25th, yeah. 1887. Hey, all right. I told you don't ask me a date. Well, you, I, I got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we actually, we did our webinar on the anniversary yes. last year. Yes. Or was it 2019? It was not last year. It was before last, I think. So it was 19. Yeah. Yeah, it was pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Pre-COVID. So, right. We didn't do anything mm-hmm. last year. And I, and I also like to say, um, I have to give credit to my uh, the executive board that directs uh GCCRP, and that's Allison Spooner, Terry Hammond, Jackie Graves, and I. Uh, Dedicated people. Yes, we are. And we have, um, we had our first meeting uh, after COVID last week, and we had a good number of people come. And so we're trying to rev back up. We have to do it virtually. When we first started, we did everything in person. Mm Um, but we are undaunted by that, and people are kind of used to virtual things now. So we're looking forward to bringing people back in and uh, and bringing certainly this awareness that one of the one of the responsibilities uh, that EJI ask of us is to inspire conversations in your communities about social justice and uh, racial violence, not just to go and and dig up the dirt and put up a a sign, Mm -hmm. but really to have meaningful conversations with people so that they understand the broader implications um, of these things. You know, people love to not know. (laughs) So we want to make it so that people know, so that even if they don't agree or they're not sympathetic, you can understand why you see people resisting and saying Black Lives Matter. Right. That you have to say they matter because history suggests that they don't matter to anybody but us. And we want to be part of the larger landscape of uh, American culture, too, and have that respected. And so we're involving, we're, we're broadening that to include everybody who should have been in the loop from the beginning that has been separated by racial identity. Well said. It's been an enlightening hour. And I want to thank you for joining us on History Notes. Thank you. Uh, You've been a great guest. And thank you to UNCG for loaning you out. (laughs) (laughs) And the uh, was the African-American. African-American and African Diaspora Studies Program. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, they got them a good one. Yeah. I'll tell them you say that. Okay. Thanks so much. (laughs) And I wasn't late, Rodney. I'm never late. I see. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You're right. You're right. Uh, Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Deborah Barnes. And uh, this is Rodney Dawson. This has been our latest edition on History Notes. Uh, So please join us next time. Thank you, Brody and uh, Press Play Studios. You've been listening to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. Just as you visit it for this podcast, continue to go to www.greensborohistory.org and select the Discover and Learn tab to listen again or learn more about many other subjects. We also invite you to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please stop by the museum when you can. We're located at 130 Summit Avenue, Greensboro. 
Hours vary, so visit our website or call 336-373-2043 for details. Once again, thank you, and keep tuning in to History Notes.